0: Hello and welcome to the Daily Claims Podcast, where we talk about life as an insurance adjuster from the perspective of property, auto, liability, and workers' compensation adjusters. My goal is to bring interesting topics in the world of claims adjusting to people who are working as an adjuster now and to people who are considering a career as a claims adjuster. All right, today we have a very special podcast. We have an in-studio guest and before I introduce him, I will have to start this conversation by asking, are you aware that this conversation is being recorded today, and do (laughs) we have your permission to do so? (laughs) So my very, very, very special guest today is Steve Furtari. Steve is a longtime adjuster. He used to be a vendor that uh, served the company I worked for, so I used to be a client of his, and then he moved on, or I moved on, rather, to become an independent adjuster, and now we're just good friends and we like to talk about claims a lot. So Steve Fratari, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'll ask it again. When did you start in this business?
1: I started in the insurance business in 1979 when I was looking for work following um, a job for a brief period as a community organizer. I was pretty young in my 20s. Happened to see an ad in um, Back then, he had the Times Union and the Democrat and Chronicle of Rochester issues. So I happened to see an ad for insurance inspector. I thought, what, what's an insurance inspector? I don't know what that's all about. And, uh, you know, I looked into it and I took a job with a company called Hooper Homes. And they, that's H-O-L-M-E-S, not H-O-M-E-S, by Oh, the way. Okay. okay, Hooper Homes. And uh, so I started with that. And basically, I interviewed people who were applying for life insurance. Auto insurance, and I was doing a lot of inspections of buildings for underwriters. So you were doing life
0: insurance and PNC.
1: Just uh, doing the interviews. right right The interviews for the applications. Someone has applied for life insurance, you need to just uh, call them up and say, um, you know what's your health history, are you okay and good health. You, you live in such and such a place and this is who you are. this is how old this is your date of birth, verifying information.
0: So the, the life insurance stuff and the and the home inspection stuff, was that for the same company?
1: Uh, different companies. Okay, okay, right? gotcha. So Hooper Homes would, would um, be in place to report to whatever insurance company would hire them. I was figuring out the replacement cost of Homes.
0: I see. So Hooper Homes was a vendor to insurance companies that would do this kind of work?
1: Underwriting departments of insurance companies.
0: I see. Okay, interesting. And how long did you work
1: there? One year. One year. <laughs> Yep. And then what? Uh, Then I happened to see another ad. You know, I really don't remember, Bill, just what the circumstances were of me wanting to get out of that business. I think I was um, educated at some point prior to that Hooper Holmes gig. Uh-huh. about claims adjusting. And I, th- you know, I think I went to the state, New York State Department of Labor, and I remember talking to this lady. Uh, you know, she said something about, none of that comes back to me. Um, she said something about um, claims adjusting. You might want to do that because my background was, you know, uh, as a community organizer, and I was dealing with people and trying to help people out, yeah. and things like that. So you might be interested in claims adjusting. So I was okay, and I happened to see another ad: claims adjuster trainee. And I followed through with that. After a year experience as insurance inspector, ins- insurance reporter. reporter. Yes, That's what it was: insurance reporter. Got it. And I was hired as a trainee. And what year was this? It was 1980. 1980. So '79 was insurance inspector. 1980 was adjuster or claim representative. Same right. thing. Right. Claim representative trainee. And
0: as far as technology goes, uh, what did smartphones look like in
1: 1980? What? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even have fax machines. You had, you had payphones, I'll bet. Oh, yeah. I remember being out in the Distinctly, I had a company car, and I distinctly remember looking for payphones so I can call in while I was out in the field as an adjuster.
0: Was it a dime then or a nickel? It was a dime. It was a dime. <laughs> was a dime. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> I guess I'm dating myself
0: here. <laughs> uh, you, you just did. You said you started in this business in so, 1980.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't think you've been born with that. Were you? You literally dated
0: yourself. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, technology has changed just in the past 10 years, let alone the past 40. So, now you you have been actually retired now since... Uh, 2019. 2019. Four years. Right. That's because that's when I started this. Since 2019... There has been technology changes already. And I, I think by the time we actually post this podcast, there'll probably be new technology changes. Who knows? So knowing what you know from 1980 until the time you retired, what are the most significant changes from a technology standpoint that
1: you've seen? Well, I would say, well, going going back, I think the first remembrance was a fax machine. Mm-hmm. Wow, you can actually, you know, transmit this document that's written and it shows up in some other location as a hard copy. Oh, yeah. Actually, fax machines are pretty good because you don't have to worry about them. The information being um, Scraged, sc- right? yeah. yeah, hacked or whatever. Right. But anyway, fax machines. Um, technology, I, I guess I would say the ability, it, it helped with the investigative process. Uh, Area where I'd be able to access information from websites. I didn't have that in 1980.
0: Okay, so that would be the most significant?
1: I would say so. Yeah, it helped my investigations. You know, to be able to go on the county clerk's office and, you know, find out the history of a particular property, let's say, how many Uh liens have been on it, and what the, maybe, you know, that might relate to the claim in some way. They have to get information from the county clerk's office. I don't have to go down in person anymore. Right. I can just get on the county website. So access
0: to information. Access to information, yeah. Public information in particular right Interesting.
1: Yeah. And finding witnesses, too. I, you know, I used to have to... People searches and things like people, that. People I remember when I first started off to find someone, I used to have to go down to the library, and they had the city directory and the suburban directory and this list, list names of people, and I'd look them up and say, okay, you know, this is where this guy lives. I need him as a witness. Let me go find him. Right. And then all of a sudden, I was able to not have to go to the library and just go on this computer, and they got the thing called the internet. It's like, right. It's that. Right.
0: <laughs> well, aside from technology, I have a list of questions for you here. And if you will permit, I will ask some of them. Go ahead. Let's do this one because uh, we get a lot of people that are new to the business listening. And I get a lot of questions from people who are new to the business, uh, particularly about being a liability adjuster versus a property adjuster and what that means, uh, but also what they should do to find a job and to get their foot in the door in this business. Mm. So what advice would you give someone new to investigating and settling liability bodily injury claims?
1: Uh I think going back, the way to answer that question, I think I'd have to go back to what it was like when I started. I had the background in the way of dealing with people. That's what the job's all about, is dealing with people and getting to cooperate. So I would say that you have to have a certain curiosity about people, about human relations, yeah. about how people communicate. It's all about communication. And if you've got that curiosity about how people relate to one another and how they communicate, as well as a curiosity about accidents. We're talking about accidents, we're investigating accidents. So it's a combination of being able to relate to people in the context of an accident, particularly a claimant who's gonna be upset. You have to be able to ask a person about what happened in, in, in an accident in the context of the stress that person is going through. And you have to be able to establish rapport. So I'm, I'm hearing empathy is an important empathy, component. Yeah, yeah. that's an important trait. If you, have an, if you have an empathy towards, a certain empathy towards people, and you can relate to them in that context, then I think you're going to be uh, successful with the job. You also have to be analytical to be able to analyze information, particularly the policy. Right. You're an agent, an instrument of the insurance company, of that policy. The policy is the heart of your job. Right. So you have to know the policy. Yeah. Particularly as it concerns policy questions or coverage questions that might come up. So
0: you had mentioned that um, you have to, that the communication is a big part of it, that you actually have to interact with people.
1: Yes.
0: And it seems, I just recently did a, a blog post and a podcast about Gen Z. I don't know how often you come into contact with people under the age of, say, 24 or between the ages of maybe 17 and 24. Mm and I don't come into contact too often with them. Um, but between those connections that I do make and what I see on social media, they're different animals than you or I. And they've grown up in, well, they're being called technology natives, meaning that they were born with cell phones and smartphones in their, in their face. And uh, they're view of culture and uh, society is much different than ours. And it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that we're just all a bunch of evil people that don't care about society, but it does mean that their priorities are different than ours ever were. And one of the complaints I hear from Gen X about Gen Z is that they don't want to interact with people. They don't want to talk on the phone. They, they would rather text Uh, They don't want to see people in person. I think independent agents are going to have a really hard time in the coming years with Gen Z because Gen Z is not the type to walk down to their independent agent, you know, after a referral from their Uncle Ned, you know, to go get a new policy. They're going to Google search for options on their phone and then fill out a, a, you know, download an app or something to get their insurance coverage in place. So in the context of claims, I have also found that that people of that age who are involved in a claim tend to not want to interact with adjusters as well. How would you overcome that as a Gen X?
1: Uh, listen to this podcast. <laughs> You know that's a good question, Bill. I, I'd have to think about that. I, I really don't know. It's a it's a it's a cultural change that we, technology has really changed the personalities of people. Yeah. So I think it's going to be. I think you have to accept it for what it is. For one thing, I know what I was taught very early on. You know, maybe this maybe can someone can take off with this remark. I, as you know, we dealt with attorneys a lot. A lot of a lot of um, claimants were represented by an attorney, and I remember very early on. In my training at this insurance company, they emphasized meeting with the attorney in person. There's body language. Mm-hmm. There's I you know, I, I eyeball eyeball communications sure. that are very essential, I found, to the settlement of a claim. I used to actually settle claims more efficiently if I met with in person with the attorneys. And what I found over the years is The attorneys were picking up in this in this change in her culture as well, and they're less, you know, like say maybe eight, ten years ago. I'd say, Hey, man, if I sit down, come out to your office and sit down, and you talk it over. Pretty big claim here, maybe we can work something out. Mm-hmm. Ah, no, I don't want to do that, you know. So, you know,
0: COVID though completely derailed it. If it was on the fence before COVID, COVID has decimated that narrative or that uh, approach
1: Interesting yeah.
0: because even the courts started handling uh, matters through zoom and now it's almost like i'm on zoom calls daily like i've had i had two this morning before you got here zoom is just the way to go and it's sad to say because you do even though they're on camera yeah i think that the the person-to-person thing is uh far more difficult to accomplish these days because of covid than it ever was before and the, the reality is though that things still get done that way right and maybe it's not ideal but we seem to be making it work as a society and there will be plenty of people who are, will argue that that is that is a bad thing that we've gone this way i don't know there's still some benefit though i mean there's certainly a convenience benefit like i've got to travel an hour to visit you versus I dial you up on Zoom and we have a, the same phone conversation or the same, I guess, conversation that we would have normally, but over Zoom. You do miss the body language. You know what else there is? A dynamic of is uh, respect that you probably would have in person that you don't online. I found that people. This is this is a rule that goes back. Prior to 1980, is that when someone's on the phone, they're more likely to be rude than in person. Yes, and if you extrapolate that to email and text messages, it's even worse. Oh yeah, you know people people get they turn into real tough guys when they're behind their keyboard, right? So that everybody knows that dynamic and is familiar with it. Now, if you were to make a spectrum of how brave people are in terms of being rude, from phone calls to text messages to in-person to Zoom. You could probably rate all these things as to the rudeness scale that mm-hmm. people are, are uh, comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, but I think Zoom uh, is probably second to in-person as far as uh, genuine behavior, as long as you've got the video going. If you don't have the video going, it's basically a phone conversation,
1: right? So I think, uh, well, it, you know, we, we can't do anything about the cultural changes that have occurred. I, I don't think, you know, it just is what it is. I, I, I don't really know we're going to be able to go back to this idea of meeting with attorneys and, you know, going out. Another thing that they really stressed is go out and just knock on the claimant's door. Right. Yeah. And that worked for me. Yeah.
0: yeah well, it still does. Oh, you still use that. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean... Um, we have, we have three different techniques to get a response from somebody when, when they're, and they're not always dodging you. Sometimes they're just too busy to get back to you. Um, but the in-person thing usually gets a response. And then a a couple of other tricks, uh, tend to get a response and they're, and they're not tricks. They're just, uh, persistence. Tenacity is the name of the game. So, um, Interesting. Well, uh, let's see. What are other questions we can ask here? This one, oh, this is a good one. And this would be appropriate to new people or seasoned adjusters. How do you assess the extent of injuries and calculate appropriate compensation in bodily injury claims? Uh, we have a book, right? You just look in the book. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, actually, there's a there's an app for that, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You'd know if it is there. I don't think so, but who knows?
0: Maybe we'll have to make one.
1: Um. Well, that's a good question. Uh, So bodily injury, of course, we have to look at the extent of the injury. Um, And the thing that comes to mind when we do that, and I think this is very important as far as the investigation is concerned, is to find out the medical history of the claimant, um, to, to determine whether or not there was something else going on with the claimant that caused the injury. For instance, um, you know, I fell down the steps. Well, yeah, there was some water on the steps. Oh, by the way, I was, you know, I had some uh, balance issues over the last couple of weeks before and I went to the doctor, you know, um, for this condition. And that's something you need to determine.
0: So I'm hearing you talk a little bit about liability and, and, how liability affects the value. Right. But what, let's, let's treat liability separate for a moment and just assume we're only talking about cases where it's 100% liability, which is rare, but let's just, for argument's sake, use that. And the reason I say that is because in my head, because I'm so simple-minded, I have to do that for myself. And I, I try and think about the injury itself first and what that's worth, and then I apply liability okay. later. So if you were to take a look at say a um the common ankle fracture, distal fibula fracture, okay. What uh, how would you approach uh looking at the value of that, assuming it's a hundred percent liability?
1: Uh I I would say that it was just based on prior settlements. I remember one thing I did comes this popped in my mind is I kept track of all the settlements mm-hmm. and the the extent of the injuries based on other claims that I've handled, previous claims that I've handled. So I remember looking to that. You know, there's a there's, this is the extent of the injury, the fracture, and it's settled for this much. Here's another one that's settled for this much. Here's another one that's settled for that much. So I look to that. I look to the history. Uh, you know, it's just like um, determining what the value is of a house. We don't know what the value of a house is until we find out what other similar houses have sold for. Sure. So I, I do that.
0: So, uh, and that gets you in the ballpark. And then there'll be there'll be other sets of damages within the claim that you would consider wages, medical, S- special expenses. damages, you call, Right? Yep, mm-hmm. and um, and those will factor in too, and, and it could affect the settlement range up or down. Probably up more than anything else. It's not going to a wage claim is never going to reduce the value of your general damages.
1: Um, I've got some thoughts in that regard. If you, if I don't want to interrupt your thought, if you're about to say something,
0: you saw the smoke coming out of my ears, <laughs> did you? <laughs> the
1: the headphones notwithstanding, <laughs> didn't, didn't control the smoke. So, what are your thoughts? So, I, well, early on, I think going back to my training, um, it it was it was a situation where you take a look at the special damage, and special damages refer to um, your lost wages and medical bills, essentially. And maybe some miscellaneous things, you know. I had to take, you know, I had to put the dog up for a couple of weeks or something, maybe, you know, at right. the kennel or what. Okay, that's part of special damages. Sure. So you take your special damage, and I think uh, pretty much we learned a, a formula of three to five times the specials. Specials meaning the amounts, the total of the um, of of the uh, bills, mm-hmm. the the documented damages, if you will. Right. Three to five times that. Okay. And then you have general damages, which is really very subjective. Yeah, there's such a subjectivity about it. And it, you know, ultimately, here's the other thing I, I uh, looked at: is if this claim doesn't settle and it goes to trial, the jury is going to be asked to value. What is that jury going to decide? How much? Again, it's subjective. Sure. And you know, you're going to have the defense attorney. I'm not even sure. You know, I I wish I had more um, experience in in monitoring trials. I guess the defense attorney is going to make a certain recommendation, and the plaintiff's attorney is going to say this is how much the claim is worth. Right. Uh, So you have to put it in that context as well. If it doesn't settle, what's going to happen if it goes to trial? What's the jury going to do? In New York City... They're going to be more liberal than you know, um, Saint Lawrence County and up in the Adirondacks. Right. You know, you get different people, right? Different di- venue, di- different venue altogether, and different um, different idea. Uh, juries will have different ideas of what value is, and they're going to be more conservative, more liberal, depending on the venue. Mm-hmm. So that's what I look at as well. If it's a, if this doesn't settle, um, what'll happen if it goes to trial? Right. I think you can also look at the claimant. Does a claimant come across as really being claims conscious? Am I going to be able to settle this thing for for a reasonable amount? Right. Uh, are we going to, you know, if he, he or she is really claims conscious, do we accommodate that? So the,
0: the jury issue is a, really a matter of risk, um, risk management decision making. You know, do we want this to, are we going to, is this the hill we want to die on, I guess right. is the, the phrase to use. Um, of course, you, then I hate to bring this up, but you, you do also have to consider how much in the way of expenses you're going to put forth on this claim. You know, Are you going to bring in experts? Uh, what are your defense costs going to be? And the, the reason that is troubling is because it puts in people's heads that if they threaten to get an attorney the value instantly skyrockets just because they don't want to have to pay a defense attorney to, to handle it. Um, I have carriers that that will not make a decision based on that. I have other carriers that will. In other words, some carriers will say, look, it's going to cost us X amount of dollars to to hire an attorney to defend this matter. Let's just settle it uh, for this amount now so we don't have to pay that attorney later. I have other carriers that will say, and every case is different. There's nuances to everything, right? But um, other carriers that will say, I don't care. This claim is not worth more than X, and there's no way we're paying uh, any more money to this person for that claim.
1: I can understand both. Yeah, both sides. Definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I could. I can understand putting a stake in the ground. I, I and personally, I f- I feel more strongly about doing that. I would rather spend the money on the attorney to get a decent, you know, practical settlement amount documented than uh, to just throw money away right. at, at at a at a
1: release. Right, and I wonder if that. I wonder if that sets a precedent. Of course, your, your your settlements are confidential, so I guess it's not like they can look back and say, "Oh, this particular carrier settled this claim yeah, for this mount," and oh, okay, well they're going to be pretty liberal. In my, you know, this is I'm speaking from a plaintiff's attorney sure. um, perspective. Oh, they they settled this right. Okay, I'm going to use that same strategy. You know, they're going to settle. Right. Let's let's uh, keep the keep the price high.
0: If you were to watch the news at any given evening, you would think that a normal bodily injury settlement is several million dollars for...
1: (laughs) For everything. For everything. (laughs) everything. Stubbed toe, you know.
0: (laughs) I got $8 million. Okay. Mm. So, um, you know, and one of the developments over the past several years has been this, um, the uh, occurrence of nuclear verdicts where the verdict comes down where it's so huge and behemoth that uh, it it shocks the conscience, you know. <laughs> and it's for some cases, real. you know, for some cases, uh, an $8 million settlement is, I mean, that's pretty huge. Like, in my daily work here, if any of the claims that I am handling right now ever approached that, I would be shocked.
1: Yep. Like I said, I kept a list of all the the settlements and they go back well, I started that when I um st- uh started off on my own mm-hmm. keeping track I never did that when I was a independent adjuster and when I was at uh, the insurance company but once I started my own business which was in 2001 mm-hmm. 2001 to two thousand nineteen, I tracked every settlement mm-hmm. most of them are like you know 10 12 15 25 maybe a few 50 thousands yeah, you yeah. know
0: so um this leads to a question that has come up quite a bit. What is your response to someone who uh, accuses you of lowballing? I know my answer, but I'd like to I'd like to get your thoughts on it.
1: Uh, you know, it hasn't happened a whole lot. I'm trying to think, well, I never really had much of a, a you mean, how how would I actually respond to that person or do you mean just what I would do as far as the, the the course of the of the file so let me put it this way
0: so imagine one of the cases that you handled for for me back in you know in the day we'll call it mm. um, take any one of those that you can think of in your head and imagine that your offer was uh, responded to with a person who said that is too low you are lowballing me just to save the insurance company
1: money uh-huh.
0: so What would your response be? I think
1: think my response, I remember my response. I said, well, that's just, you know, that's your prerogative if you want to.
0: Thanks for participating today. Join us next week for part two. Hit that subscribe button real quick and tell all of your adjuster friends to check this out as well. Join Chantal Roberts and Bill Auten on the Clubhouse app every other Tuesday where we head up the art of adjusting and discuss all kinds of exciting insurance topics. For independent adjusting services, go to www.auten.claims. And for anyone interested in working as an independent liability adjuster, go to www.auten.claims FQS and scroll down to the skills assessment button to fill out your information and we'll get back to you right away.